When I was still a boy, we moved into town from a five-acre block of not very useful ground down the valley. Now, for the first time, we had a backyard demarcated by a timber fence. But right behind us was a reserve of bushland, not much more than five acres itself. A tract of eucalyptus forest strewn with boulders. A stream ran through it, which seemed always to run at a trickle and was choked with weeds. But it was still a place on which we could focus some of our play. We were now in the suburbs of Launceston, although only just. Back then the metro bus didn't quite go far enough south to reach us. My cousins lived down a cul-de-sac directly opposite our house. Behind them were the fields of farmers. These folks seemed to grow crops of thistles and gorse, or else they were raising plovers. Once in a blue moon we might see sheep. So although we were hemmed in by neighbours' houses and tarmac streets, the paddocks and that reserve behind our place gave us kids plenty of room to roam around, to make up games, get lost, throw sticks and stones, and stretch out our legs in such a way that it shaped our gait for the rest of our lives. And of course it was here that we encountered a ghost. Perhaps we procured him from the undergrowth, or lured him out of the shadows of the gum trees. Maybe he'd been swinging through the branches with the magpies and butcher birds, or else he had silently poured through with the burbling water in the creek. I can't speak for his origins. However, we knew that his name was Mr Hodges. But trying to explain a story about ghosts is like trying to explain dreams to your bedmate first thing in the morning. How did we know his name was Mr Hodges? This I can't say, but it's something the five of us all agreed on, my brother, my cousins and me, and there wasn't so much that we all agreed on. And how did we recognise his presence? How did we sense that he was threatening us? Well, just like in a dream, you simply get these things, don't you? And it doesn't very well bear the burden of explanations. We met him when I was about eight years old, I reckon. The eldest of the cohort of us kids must have been closing in on the end of primary school, and my youngest cousin was, I guess, five or six. Most often we were outdoors, after school or on weekends or throughout the school holidays. We invented sports, we took dogs for walks, we followed the course of the creek, we got prickles and burrs caught in our socks and mud on the knees of our pants. Our mums had endless loads of our clothes to wash. We must have covered every square metre of the bush many times over. So if there was a ghost in our neighbourhood, we were bound to meet them. 
but I have given up trying to tell my friends about my belief that Mr Hodges came into our lives because we told ghost stories. I've concluded that no one wants to hear my theory that fictions and fantasies are perhaps a portal through which the beings of another realm can enter. I don't expect anyone to believe that anymore, and that's okay. I don't really have a point to prove. It's just a theory which I've picked up through my proximity to ghosts, and Mr Hodges was not my last. You can believe what you want. All I know is that one minute my older cousins were laughing in the cubby house. They were confabulating about a ghost, listing some of the ghost's qualities and suggesting that it was going to give us younger ones a real fright later on. It was night time and we'd dragged a telly out there to watch the Saturday night movie. And then we'd started yarning, a trait we all learned early on. Soon afterwards we heard a hubbub outside, a dark rustling, an unexplained shrieking. The flames on the candles danced, swelled and diminished. And strange things happened from then on. What sort of strange things? Well, one morning we rose and found globs of translucent jelly all around my cousin's backyard. None of the neighbours had it. It was just inflicted upon us. Another time on summer holiday in a dowdy Bastrate resort, we were in the games room, my three cousins, my brother and I, when a voice came out of nowhere in a terrific roar, shouting, Get out of here, quick smart! We looked up Mr Hodges on Encarta, which was a kind of Wikipedia confined to the rather limiting boundaries of a compact disc. You'd pop the CD in, search whatever you wanted, and waited to see if anything came up. Often there was nothing. And occasionally the results were only loosely relevant. But it did not surprise us in the least that the search for Mr Hodges led us straight to a page on the Massachusetts witch trials of centuries ago. Why would a villain of a historic event from another century in a different hemisphere end up in a patch of bush in northern Tasmania? Well, I don't know. But ghosts, like jokes, like dreams, they operate on a level beyond our more obvious states of awareness. Like much of life, it's only vaguely comprehensible. It's inexplicable. Yet when a dog being walked by a stranger in our neighbourhood suddenly reared up and attacked me one day, it was evident to my cousins and my brother and I that this was the work of Mr Hodges as well. My hot chips went everywhere. Yes, we were haunted. But how badly? Was random shouting and the odd wayward dog all we would suffer? We spent countless days in the bush and never copped worse than the odd scrape, bruises that never bothered us. No one got kidnapped. None of us broke a bone. We all grew up healthy and relatively happy and only sort of crazy. 
as my mum said with astonishment a few Christmases ago. None of us ended up in jail. Aren't we lucky? When I think about it all now, and I do, often, I find it hard to say that Mr Hodges wasn't in fact a benevolent presence in our lives as we had that childhood living next to the bush. For about a dozen years I lived in that house. When I think about it now, there were few barriers to the bush behind us, all of them easily breached. The glass sliding doors and the Venetian blinds over them weren't much of an obstacle, although the blinds must have been tricky somehow because I always ended up tangled up in them. The backyard was small. It had a decent camber to it, which made it a difficult cricket pitch, but we played there anyway, and frequently had to scramble over the fence to retrieve the ball. We were out there almost all the time, but when I wander through the reserve now, I realise how little we knew the ecology of the place. It is truly a mixed forest native bush blended with introduced and invasive plants. I'm sure it was cleared for grazing early on in the colonial years, and so it's got big openings where the weeds can really take root. The same area had been a part of my dad's childhood range. He'll occasionally tell me a story of how he and his mates would tear ass around, as he puts it crashing bicycles and experimenting with fireworks. He can generally remember how it all looked when he was a kid, and subsequently he can say what's changed. Further scratching around in archives has helped me figure out how the land has been divvied up historically. From an early stage of the colonial era, the woodlands here would have been enticing country for farming and cultivation. The big early land grants of 200 years ago were gradually reduced to suburban backyards. Dad rents one of these to this day. There's a nice touch in the fact that he proudly calls his modest garden of tomatoes, chilli plants and beetroot the farm. Also adjacent to the little patch of bushland is the South Launceston Football Club ground. A hallowed place, really. My dad played for City South, as the team was then known, and I too spent a few years running around there, playing juniors. On some winter Saturdays I go and hang around the grandstand and listen for yarns. Over the years, this quiet neighbourhood ground has been graced by a few heroes. One of these was Derek Pearden, 
who moved to a boy's home in Youngtown from the Bass Strait Islands as a seven-year-old, played footy at a national level as a young man, and came back to Youngtown in his twenties to win two premierships with City South. He'd have been a worthy role model for my childhood, a great Aboriginal player of the sport I so loved, but I never learned about him until only recently, long after my own footy retirement. Sometimes, in places like the suburbs of Launceston, it can take a long time for a story to find the right storyteller. Meanwhile, at the other end of the reserve, only a few blocks away, Jingler's Creek trickles away through suburban infrastructure. Somewhere near the airport, it begins to burble out of the earth. It later runs into the North Esk, which in turn dumps the contents of its curious catchment into the Kanamaluka estuary and runs off into the sea. Had we known that, perhaps we'd have felt more connected to the rest of the world. As it was, we lived on a small map, isolated, insular, introverted. But this didn't bother us. And nowadays, around the edges of the reserve, all the world's changes are coming, even here. I know stories of rental prices being jacked up around there, and even dodgy houses that should be cheap as chips are becoming unaffordable, leaving plenty of vulnerable people uncertain about their shelter and their future. The empty lots that Dad ran through as a boy are no longer unoccupied. Fences have gone up, streets have been laid out like snakes amongst the hills. Even for me, driving around Mum's house, I see irrevocable change. Fields where we chucked up cubby houses, farmland that played host to our cricket matches, huge swathes of recreational land have now become private, off-limits. And I have belatedly realised that we had names for almost nothing out there. Those we did have were vague. Gumtree, Waddle, Wallaby, Jay... Although we all loved books and even at times enjoyed school, we had almost nothing when it came to a literacy of the bush. Even things we might have learned, the few practical matters to which our parents attended, these too were foreign to us. Like, which trees gave the best firewood, for example. Or the fact that there was even food out there. Scattered throughout the reserve were native cherries, a pretty tree that produces glossy, sweet red fruit at the height of summer. It seems that us kids never knew this. At least I don't remember nibbling on them, and I definitely had a sweet tooth back then. Alternatively, there are kangaroo apples out there, a plant that belongs to the Solanum genus which means it's a relative of potatoes, tomatoes and eggplants, as well as species of nightshade and horse nettle, and a heap of other plants from around the world. The Tasmanian kangaroo apple puts out a fruit with interesting properties. When it's green, it's poisonous. Apparently it's edible when it's completely ripened, 
but I've not been game to try it. It's also used in producing a type of steroid hormone. And I'm intrigued that such a potent plant grew in our vicinity without anybody knowing it. I was never warned not to eat kangaroo apples. I suppose we could easily have made ourselves very sick out of curiosity. And curious we were. Yet the curiosity didn't lead us into any sort of learning about what was growing around us as we played our games. Eucalypts flowered, high above our heads and beyond the notice of even the adults. Not long ago I spoke to someone in a nearby suburb who'd never seen the blossom of black peppermints, despite how common and prolific they can be. In fact, when pressed, this person said he'd only ever seen the bold red flowers of introduced ornamental angophoras. He did not know that gum trees could have white or cream bloom, which is the case with almost all our eucalypts. Yet we were lucky to live so near to the natural rhythm of things. My formative years had been spent in close proximity to it all, and I had plenty of encounters with the textures, contours and behaviours of the living world. A basic education in such things. I learned that jackjumpers sting, that wallabies are skittish and watchful, that blue-tongued lizards enjoy the sun, that gum leaves have a sweet, tangy perfume, that tree ferns have a lovely downy fuzz in their crowns, that mushrooms often appear after rain. This knowledge was extended a little bit in the reserve behind our house at the edge of Launceston, just not as much as it might have been. It is not fair or reasonable to ask other animals to live in a single clearing, a few acres in size, in the middle of sprawling suburbs. It is not enough to section off a hectare and expect every critter to find a habitat, to make a home from it. Yet the amount of animal life that could be found behind my childhood home was impressive. There were paddy melons and red-necked wallabies, possums, multiple species of frogs and snakes and other lizards, countless fungi and myriad birds, magpies and currawongs and honey eaters and fantails and kookaburras. If you were lucky you could well look up and see a wedge-tailed eagle or a peregrine falcon observing the backyard. My mum recently reported that we even had bandicoots visit us when we were kids. I don't really remember meeting them, except on the wrappers of a little chocolate bar that I think Cadbury's put out. They were called Furry Friends. And they came in a series in which the packaging depicted a different native Australian animal. There were wallaroos and numbats, betongs and bandicoots. One of our weekend rituals was to make the long trek through the bush to a corner shop on the other side of the reserve. And it seems appropriate that sometimes we bought these chockies along with the hot chips and paddle pop ice creams that were invariably on our menu. Likewise, it strikes me as about right that the proprietor there addressed us with animal nicknames. Not so furry, perhaps. 
but we were a family of odd creatures enjoying our evolution in the bush. It's just a shame that we had more names for lollies than we did for the different species of fauna in our vicinity. And so in those first years we made the bush a social space, mostly shared with family. One of my early childhood memories of that area is our family unit, mum, dad, my brother and me, taking the dog for a walk in late summer, when the thistles shone bronze and butterflies lapped at the soft purple flowers they'd produced. I suspect memories like these must stay in my parents' minds as well. Such moments are surely the reason you have kids and raise a family. And we were doubly lucky to have our comfortable spot at the edge of town, and then the bush, which was like an extension of our backyard. We had stumbled into something that may have resembled an image of an Australian family dream. And at least from my perspective, we encountered those scenes often enough in those years. Even if they did falter down the track and the family fragmented, as families so often do. Later I would shift my allegiance from family to friends anyway. The bush became a stomping ground for adolescent striving in one odd corner of that bush, there's a small outcrop of tall dolerite boulders just by the creek. This became a sort of clubhouse for me and whichever boys I had as mates at the time. More than once we went down with bottles of pre-mixed drinks, cordials with vodka and that sort of thing. And we made merry there under the casuarinas, smashing the bottles as we went. Likewise, I remember taking a full jar of marmalade down there with a friend, setting it up on a log, and chucking stones at it until we broke the thing. I don't remember what the purpose of this test was. It was probably just one of many activities we undertook when we were young to prove a point that would much later down the track seem to have no value whatsoever. Yet at the time it was all-consuming and created so much anxiety that it blinded us to anything good or beautiful around us. My brother took charge of walking charcoal, our lovely mongrel dog. I think he probably went to smoke ziggies in secret, actually. 
I occasionally went down there on my own, perhaps responding to the first stirrings of a desire for solitude. One night I saw something simple, but which struck me as very powerful. A large limb spontaneously cleaved itself off the side of a gum tree and went crashing down through the undergrowth beneath it. I didn't put this into words, of course, but it was as if I'd glimpsed that the forest had an energy within it, that these trees and bushes had their own sort of life that was separate and yet connected to my own. When I got a bit older, I took a girl down there, a thin slip of a thing, skinny as me, and we shivered under a knitted blanket until midnight, until we gave up on stargazing and freezing ourselves. In hindsight, I suspect that she would have liked me to have kissed her, but I was far too inexperienced and insecure to try anything like that. Sometimes I still notice that spot. It's as if the earth is marked with another missed opportunity, one which may make me wryly wonder what might have happened if I'd taken this or that initiative throughout those years. But there are too many intersections like these, spots all along the trails of your life where love was lost or friendships failed, where risks weren't taken or the truth wasn't told. I'm pretty sure my partner on that evening wouldn't now regret or even remember that I didn't turn my head and bring it close to hers. Maybe she wishes she'd brought a thicker jumper. Or just gone home earlier if we weren't going to bloody make out. Later still, I went traipsing through the reserve for early morning meetings with other young adults, with an aim to save the world. I was old enough that I could have had my driving ticket, but I didn't. I was powered only by my own idealism. The paths I made, sidling along forest tracks and crisscrossing the clearings, still seemed to be emblazoned in the landscape in my mind. I saw dawn rise over the tops of eucalypts. Paddy melons scampered away at my approach like bounding balls of furred shadow. There would be spiderwebs strung up between the weeds along the creek and fog and dew and frost were frequent companions on this journey. When I went to these meetings in winter, I was walking in pure darkness until I reached the next suburb over. And to this day, I still feel a secret connection to country that I've walked through in the hours of night. As it turns out, I did not save the world. But that hopeless attempt at least gave me the excuse to go forth into that patch of bush and get to know it in a different way, at a different time of day. Around that time I became friends with a curious woman from another town. She was a mess, and one of her first text messages to me was to ask for help from afar. She told me that she'd just taken enough painkillers to have overdosed. Each rendezvous I had with her was bloody stressful. Her presence filled my stomach with what felt like a nest of grubs. 
Only once did I let her meet me at that house in Youngtown, which even at that point I thought of as my mum's place and mum's alone. I was just about to move into my first share house, and my parents had separated. To keep out of harm's way, I took her roaming in the reserve, and we spent just about all our daylight hours there, talking quietly, as was my friend's preferred mode. Short, sharp sentences, philosophical and full of bitterness. We scrambled up into an open knoll. These days we'd be sitting at someone's back fence, since the suburbs have barged their way into that part of the reserve. But on this particular occasion no one was near us, and my friend pulled out a small metal case with crushed up powder in it. As I looked elsewhere, she snorted a line. Later, standing on the stump of an old eucalyptus, glaring at the yellowy-grey forest and fields, my friend let out an almighty scream. It echoed through the woods, off towards the new neighbourhoods, shattering the privacy of every cul-de-sac, down such-and-such clothes, or this-and-that court, running up the avenues and out to the mountains that rose on the horizon. It was as though that stump was the centre stage of a native amphitheatre, and at last she had been able to deliver the soliloquy that told her whole story. For all I have experienced in the bush there, sharing it with dozens of friends over more than 20 years of yarns, this is the moment the memory that returns to me most frequently, most piercingly. One day when I was about 18 years old, while I was in town drinking smoothies with my friend Chloe, my mother called and told me that the bush behind our house was ablaze. I don't remember now the source of that fire, whether it was a lightning strike or a spark from a chainsaw or teenage arson. But whatever the case, the flames started to climb the gum trees and tear through the scrub sending animals scurrying from their hiding places, 
Charred leaves fizzed and blew over the neighbourhood, and the sky was stained the colour of uranium. A pair of helicopters flew back and forth for hours, drawing water from the river nearby in great bags and dumping it where it burned most dangerously, trying to quench the flames and keep the fire from spreading into the suburbs. Mum wasn't evacuated, so the fireys must have felt they were on top of things, but still, I'm sure she was somewhat worried, watching the water bombers at work right behind the back fence. I stayed in town and finished off my smoothie. By the time I got home, the bush behind our house was smouldering and smelt something like a summer barbecue, perhaps a bit more piquant, like a market full of spices or a bouquet garni. The ground still radiated warmth and the tree trunks were blackened, streaked a few metres up. Shrubs had been reduced to spindly canes and sticks, stripped of colour and life. Yet on our side of the fence there was no sign of the strife that had threatened us. Now I wonder, was it from my mother that I first heard the biblical story of Moses and the burning bush? The story goes that whilst traversing some mountainside on the Sinai Peninsula... Moses saw some ligneous plant ablaze, on fire, but not consumed by the flames, burning but not burnt. He took his sandals off and approached the bush barefoot, and the bush then spoke to him, commissioning Moses to undertake a political journey to Egypt, and just in case he was disinclined to do so, the voice of the bush revealed itself as his God. They reckon that that burning bush must have been a type of bramble from the rubus genus, like the blackberry weeds that are strewn all throughout Tasmanian woodlands. But those bushes go up like they've been doused in gasoline. They crackle and flare, their leaves and canes wither and combust. And my mum never mentioned that the blackberries said a word to her. Although it's possible that in her heightened state of concern she wasn't really listening. Yet I also suspect they wouldn't have had much of a chance to converse as they disappeared in great conflagrations. And of the native species in that patch of bush, almost none of them would have feared fire. Like much Australian flora, the vast majority of it had evolved to endure hot-dry conditions. Indeed, they even counted on bushfires to reproduce, and courted burning by shucking off bark and leaves and other debris to create fuel. And what happened across the country was that the Aboriginal families who have travelled and lived throughout it for years recognised and joined the partnership between plant life and fire when you learn to read the landscapes in most parts of Tasmania, you can discern that plenty of hills and plains have been deliberately burnt for many millennia. Yet this was information I didn't know. All I had been told was that fire was dangerous. That you didn't want anything to do with it 
except when it was in very small containers, tidy and tame, warm, light-giving, easy to extinguish. I thought to see a bush raised like this was like seeing it dead. But this isn't right, and I started to notice that in the weeks to come. Because the ground did not remain a bare bed of black ash, it became a nursery of green sprouts. The scorched vegetation regenerated. Some of the gum trees started to cover themselves with a fuzz of leaves, which had spontaneously burst out all over their trunks, taking in what light they could in what seemed to be a spurt of therapeutic photosynthesis. Only a few weeks later I went down into the reserve with this friend of mine, Chloe. I took a camera too and loaned Chloe an oversized grey shirt and set her up to pose awkwardly within the panorama of black and green bushland. I smeared ash on her face and put sprigs of bright regrowth in her hair. And the photographs were nothing special. But I realise now that what mattered about that photo shoot is that I was beginning to recognise burnt country as beautiful. Instead of seeing it as tortured, instead of being terrified, you could try to develop the skills that made fire a friend and not an enemy. Now I would say that it must be done. You will, after all, hear Aboriginal people tell you how they see well-burnt bush. Healthy, happy, lovely. It's not scary at all, if you know what's going on. Nowadays, the local council does occasional burns to tidy up the bush, and in some manner they imitate the old ways and what once happened in eucalyptus forests around the island. It's not quite the same when so much infrastructure interferes with the scope of every burn-off. And as for that lot of bush behind the house where I spent so many of my younger years, there is a great risk of fires coming with more voracious appetites. And I suspect an ever-increasing urgency when it comes to listening to our country's Aboriginal and climate scientists. Meanwhile, the blackberries and other weeds, I suspect, keep a stock of seed banked well beneath the earth, waiting for the right conditions to grow. They may not be the holy bramble of Sinai territory, but they do speak. So too the native cherries, the cutting grass, the rice flower, the black peppermints. I know this because I have started to listen to them.
Dad lives just up the road, still within shouting distance of where he tear-assed around as a kid. And Mum still lives in the house that was my home for most of childhood, right there next to what's officially called the Youngtown Regional Reserve. Naturally, the house started shrinking when I became an adult and left home. My old bedroom is now full of junk, which one day we'll go through and find that even for a family of hoarders, and even for an archivist like myself, that none of it was worth keeping. At a certain point, Mum started feeding animals in the backyard. I suppose it was when my brother and I had grown up. We no longer needed mothering. Not in the practical sense. And Mum didn't have such a clear identity beyond that role. So she decided to become the mother of the bush. All things considered, it might not be the best thing for the animals themselves and it seems to bring my mum as much nuisance as anything. Or so she says, sighing and delivering monologues about the latest mischief she's witnessed in the backyard. Sometimes she's so burdened by demanding animals that she can hardly leave the house. Unless that's just a handy excuse for her. It started with stray cats, actually. Cats, apart from their other well-known faults, are pretty well just shits in general. And it was astonishing to witness how much they encumbered my mum's life. Eventually she moved on from them, or convinced them to move on. For the most part, anyway, there is still one called Gremlin who lives in the lounge room. Then there were possums for a time. In fact, I remember coming to visit one Christmas Eve to find my mum hand-feeding slices of lamington to the possums at her back door, which seemed like such a fantasy of Australiana that it was too good to be true. And nowadays it's birds. Kookaburras, butcher birds, ravens and currawongs all crowd around waiting for cubes of cheese or meaty offcuts. When I visited her last spring... There were precisely eleven magpies. One of the juveniles even had a name. Speckles. These days I don't have the heart to tell my mum that by feeding these particular species she's perpetuating a human-made system in which the smaller birds are getting crowded out. I have been more blunt about these things in the past but I've come to accept that my mum has a very warm, caring and simple heart, if not an instinct for the science or the nuance of ecology. It's not perfect, but it's better than indifference. And I like the fact that she has, in her way, made the border between the yard and the reserve more permeable. That there's less division between human space and space for other animals in my mother's life. Apparently a little while back, Speckles hopped into the kitchen demanding more cheddar. Like I say, maybe it's not ideal that she's now a magpie's mother. But she's a better role model than those who are cruel, 
ignorant, arrogant, aggressive or greedy. Which sadly sums up too many of us in terms of our relationships with the other critters around us in this country. The reserve has gotten smaller too, not just in perception, but in reality. New streets have encroached into most edges of the bush nowadays, trimming it bit by bit. I hope that those whose backyards touch the bush recognise that they're in a privileged position. Fewer and fewer people on this planet get the proper chance to connect with other animals, which is surely rare in human history. And something is lost. We're missing out on something without those interactions. But if you live with a patch of bush at your back fence, you've got the opportunity to witness the beautiful complexity of life every day. And you must take it as often as you can. Usually, before or after I go to see my mum, I'll take a wander down the old tracks, finding an excuse to pick up a memory or notice a new expression of life in the forest a different mushroom, the nest of one or another bird. Silver wattles spread. At this time of year they start to glow, a beacon in winter's gloom. In spring I'll see the delicate sky-blue flowers of the flax lily. Last summer I watched a butterfly of the same colour make an impressive flight a pointless itinerary that gained at about two metres over two minutes before it took a rest on a casuarina branch. Into early autumn there was plenty of centauri, a pretty little herb with pink flowers which was very familiar to me, but which I couldn't name until I recently asked a botanist mate. It's a weed, named after the beast that traipsed ancient Greece and it apparently makes a healthy tea-like drink. Who knows what other role it plays in the mesh of living beings that make up a forest, in that shared mishmash of stories that goes beyond human use and mythology, which we could surely sense if only we had a deeper and more long-lasting connection. These are the edgelands where suburbia and the bush overlap. The processes of native plants will never quite be the same as they were before exotic agricultural and economic ideas were imported here. The creek will carry contaminants, its flow trammelled and hindered. For plenty of our furry or feathered friends, there simply isn't space enough here anymore. Not enough hollow trees for habitat, not enough undergrowth for shelters and dens. It's hard to imagine this patch of bush will ever properly rehabilitate. In fact, you'd have to suspect that it will slowly be reduced in size as the population of Launceston grows and the urban footprint spreads. Or else it'll burn again. Fierce, hot and hard. And take some of the edge of town with it.
You could hate a place like this for its imperfections, especially in Tasmania. We're almost within Cooey, there's still bush that we call wilderness, by which I think we mean land that's been left to its own processes without the interference of modern human technologies. By comparison, a scrappy little wedge of reserve where town and farmland meet is not impressive. It's no national park. Wouldn't get a look in with the World Heritage Committee. And in a way it just rubs in the fact that ecological change has largely gone beyond our control. There are huge carpets of overbearing weeds. Introduced plants with their prolific eye-catching flowers. And the waterways look slack and oily. The noisy snarl and roar of the machines that help to make countless home improvements hovers over everything. And in amongst the thorns and vines, you'll always find rubbish. Yet we really shouldn't hate it. Not the blackberries, not the cats, not even the humans. To hate is to miss the point. It's a backward step. It can only help us come up with ugly solutions. It's the same sort of simplistic attitude that gets us into each and every single mess we start. I'm trying to resist it. To instead come up with new models of criticism, new techniques for making adjustments, new ways of talking about these things, new ways of caring. It's not to say we ignore the imperfections or that we allow the persecution of the little critters in such a place, that we feed cheese to birds or sweet treats to marsupials. But we can still have interesting, pleasant, even beautiful encounters in imperfect ecology. We can make our memories amongst the weeds. And I dare say we are more likely to actually do the work to open space for other species, if we're not dismissive of mixed country. For most of the world these days has this same mongrel heritage, and so do we. I like what I saw the other week. A Vietnamese couple cutting watercress out of the bed of a trickling, nameless creek back there. They gave me a recipe for soup. Each in our own way, we must try to nurture these places and cherish the moments when our paths cross with other critters and other people as well. On our own shared and personal maps, we might mark the spots where our stories have their roots so that we remember the significance of that place. Even if later down the track it turns out that we're forced to remember what's been lost. All in all, I won't be surprised if many years from now I find that I keep trying to return to places that I call Soup Creek or the Vodka Rocks or Lost Lover Hill. 
or Mr. Hodges' paddock. Even if they're not on the maps. Even if the only real name for the place is so very dull and formal. The Youngtown Regional Reserve.